the college football playoff field is set and all the coaching positions in the SEC are filled with uh, Auburn getting Hugh Freeze as its hire last week. Lane Kiffin retained by Ole Miss and the coaching carousel, at least with the the SEC, has reached uh, its end. This is SEC Football Unfiltered. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. John, we got a couple big topics to discuss today. Of course, we want to get into the college football playoff. Georgia, the top overall seed after dominating LSU in Atlanta on Saturday. I think no real surprise there. And the Bulldogs will go into the playoff as a team to beat alongside, I think, number two seed, Michigan, Alabama left on the outside looking in. We'll get into that in the second half of the podcast. But as we were recording this last week, John, Auburn was wrapping up its hire of Hugh Freeze. And we really didn't get into that too much last week because we wanted to wait and see if that reached the finish line. It has. We've seen some other hires outside the SEC since then, notably Deion Sanders from Jackson State, Coach Prime hired at Colorado. And we've also had some other high-profile programs, Nebraska and Wisconsin, make hires. So let's do a little ranking of the hires today, shall we? You're always up for good debate over a, a rankings list, right? And, and you like kind of playing that judge and jury role. I know you do. Yeah, I've, I've got total authority on this. I really, I really relish that. Were you? Uh, did you ever watch Judge Judy, John, or any of those judge shows? Because I feel like you'd be a good, you know, small claims court or divorce court. I, I really think you could, you could wield a firm gavel up there on the bench. It's funny you should say that. I was actually I was in my hometown this weekend in Clinton, Louisiana, and I was talking to the the judge. I remember when she was a uh, senior in high school. I thought, well, man, I well, wait a second. Why, why were you talking to her this weekend? Did you run into some trouble down there in Clinton? Uh, nothing that couldn't be worked out with a couple of good phone calls. Yeah. I'm talking to Betsy and I liked just her, her philosophy on this. I mean, she's no nonsense. I think that's the kind of judge I would have been. All right. <laughs> you, you can, you can throw on uh, your judge's robe for the, for this one, John. Let's get, let's get into it. Let's, uh, let's take four coaches for this conversation. We're not going to get into some of the, the dregs of these hires, and I'm not going to quiz you on who some of these these lower-end group of five schools may be hired. Let, let's, let's narrow it down to four coaches. Auburn hires Hugh Freeze. Deion Sanders, a name who at the beginning of the Auburn search, I think some folks wondered, would Auburn roll the dice on Dion? I don't think that was ever really a, an option that Auburn strongly considered. Colorado did take the leap of faith and hired Dion. So he's number two. Nebraska hired Matt Rule, former Baylor coach, didn't work out in the NFL with the Carolina Panthers. He's back in the college game where he's been at his best and will try to revive Nebraska. And then Luke Fickle took Cincinnati to the college football playoff last year as a group of five darling, hired by Wisconsin. So let's start with your uh, – you want. Let's go from the bottom up. Let's go from the bottom up. Who who made the worst hire of that group? And let's work our way up to the top. So who, who do you have at the bottom of your list? Well, I need to preface this by saying I do like all these hires. I'm not condemning anybody. This is a challenge to, okay, so you put it in a very negative light. I would prefer you would have said, who made the fourth best hire? 
as opposed to the worst. That that's like they failed in this. So I would probably go with uh, Wisconsin and Luke Fickle. I think, um, which is wild to say, right? Because this guy, you know, was is the first coach, the only coach yes. he's ever taken a group of five team to the playoff. But I don't have an argument with with him. Go go ahead and continue. Yeah, Luke Fickle. Um, I think it's different uh, winning at Cincinnati than it is at Wisconsin. I think it will be a challenge. Although, I, if I'm if I'm planning to be in the Big Ten, I I really like the looks of that Big Ten West because that's a division that absolutely no one wants to win. Uh, here, you take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. Of course. Scott Frost probably looked at it the same way when he left UCF for Nebraska, and we saw how that worked out. So I'll go with that simply because I don't. It's it's hard to put any of these guys forth. In fact, I changed my order like while you were talking. Okay. The interesting thing about Luke Fickle, John, I, I mean, I think it is a good hire. I don't, I don't have a huge argument with you putting him forth given the list. I think. I think I'm I'm with you. I like all these hires to some degree, but with Fickle, you know, they always talk about fit, cultural fit, right? And I know Luke Fickle's from Columbus, Ohio, played at Ohio State, and so I think to some degree, people have always wondered, oh, is he holding out for the Buckeyes? Well, we don't know how long Ryan Day is going to be at Ohio State, but if you just take the fact out of it that that he played for Ohio State, just in terms of fit, personality, what he does, the brand of football. And it really matches Wisconsin, doesn't it? Like, I, I feel like when you watch Cincinnati play last year, that playoff team, that felt like a really good Wisconsin team. Really, I mean, you could have changed the jerseys and told me this is a really, a really, really good Wisconsin team, and I said, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. That's that's who this is. Exactly. I I, I really agree with that. You, you watch him and you see him on the sideline in Cincinnati and think, okay, what if the temperature dropped twenty five degrees in the next ten minutes? Well, he'd still be a good fit for that. Yeah, I I can see him on the Wisconsin sideline already. I mean, so again, I'm not knocking the hire. I just, I think it's a really good hire, but you also have to look at where the program is and what it needs. Wisconsin has had more success than some of these programs recently. Uh, So I have him fourth, and I, I guess number three, would be Matt Rule to Nebraska. Now, there's nothing wrong with Matt Rule. I mean, I thought for Nebraska, that's about as good as it can get from Nebraska. I think there were a lot of people uh, that have said, I mean, established coaches who have accomplished what Matt Rule has and said, hey, do you want the uh, Nebraska job? They would have laughed. I mean, Nebraska is nowhere near what it used to be. You know, I say used to be, we got to go back a lot of years. Scott Frost is problems, uh, the hero homecoming that everyone envisioned. He couldn't win there either. In fact, he probably flopped more spectacularly than anyone has there. So, yeah, I, I think that is absolutely the best Nebraska could do. And and I think Matt Rule, he proved at Baylor. He could win. He revived that program. But I've seen other people revive the program at Baylor. He's got yeah, a although, tough job. Yeah, yeah no, nobody came into Baylor with the, the situation Matt Rule had, though. I mean, it, it was it, you had it on a challenge on two fronts. One, simply yes. reviving Baylor. But two, coming in 
on the heels of just, you know, one of the biggest messes, uh, one of the biggest scandals. And I, I think in the college, the history of college sports with what was going on, um, you know, within really all widespread throughout the university at Baylor, their sexual assault scandal uh, that included their football program. Art Bryles cost him his job. So, I mean, he had a real cleanup project on his hands. And by year three, Baylor was in the Sugar Bowl. And then you, I don't, I don't discount this either. Matt Rule won 10 games in back-to-back years at Temple. I mean, Temple. We're not talking about basketball here. We're talking about Temple football, uh, playing in the American Athletic Conference. Temple won back-to-back years with, with 10 wins. I mean, that was unheard of for Temple. So, I, yeah, I, I think he's a really, really good program builder. He's proved it at two different FBS schools. I think if if Matt Rule cannot rebuild Nebraska into something formidable, I mean, I, I don't know who can. I mean, to me, this this was about as good of a hire as Nebraska could make. I, I agree with you there, and it's, it's kind of tough putting him third. I don't know what Nebraska's status is in IL, but if there's any program that needs a really aggressive, lucrative NIL, it's Nebraska. Nebraska Warren, had, Warren Buffett ties up all his money in Coca-Cola. I don't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, well, he, he was a Nebraska alum. I don't know how much money he's pumping into their NIL program. He's He wants something that pays dividends, not pays victories. I don't. I don't see his presence in that recruiting Nebraska's doing. I don't say, man, Warren Buffett must be involved. No, <laughs> I, I guess the I guess he's the first call you make. Hey, why don't don't you want to have a team? How about we change the name of the stadium or just change the name of the team from the Cornhuskers to the Buffets? You you gotta do what you Berkshire. gotta do. <laughs> so the fighting Berkshire Hathaways. Yeah, if if he uh, if he turns me down, I'm calling uh, just on a just on a long shot, calling Elon Elon Musk and saying, "Hey, you're a high profile guy, a lot of success. You're a builder. You're rebuilding Twitter. You want another? You want more? How about having a a college football team as your brand? So I'm I'm making that call, but I think. I think he can do the others. I think Matt Rule can do the other stuff. He can lay a foundation. He'll play a brand of football that Nebraska fans could relate to. Uh, he's a tough-minded coach, so I think I think Nebraska made a good hire. So, rating these guys: Luke Fickle fourth, and Matt Rule third. Um, yeah, it's it's not a put down on either one of those guys. I think they're both good hires. Yeah, we, we did this last year, John, and we looked uh-huh. at six hires. It was a little more of an active coaching carousel last year, especially with the high-profile schools. And so we, we, I remember we looked at six hires last year, and you had Dan Lanning as your number six, the hire at Oregon. I mean, that, that shows you, I think, the broader range of hires that we had last year as compared to what we're looking at this year. I mean, there, there's no Dan Lanning in this mix. Dan Lanning was a young coordinator Oregon was taking a chance on, you know, they, these guys we're, we're looking at here, you have three proven coaches in Hugh Freege, Matt Rule, and Luke Fickle. And then you have Deion Sanders, who's a candidate uh, who really doesn't fit in a box. He's unlike anything we've really seen uh, in college football. So I think, yeah, the conversation is much different than last year where you had like Lincoln Riley um, and, and Brian Kelly, two of the biggest names in the sport were on the move. And then you had, 
you know, a young coordinator in Dan Lanning, whom SEC football fans were very familiar with for, um, you know, his part on Kirby Smart's staff at Georgia. But if you're outside the SEC, I mean, fans at Oregon were probably scrambling to Wikipedia to figure out who the heck was Dan Lanning. You know, we don't have that situation with some of these high profile hires this year. No, and uh, my number two high hire is certainly, though lacking in head coaching experience, is certainly high profile. He's prime time, Deion Sanders. And when you first brought this up to me, uh, immediately said, well, he would be last among the coaching hires because Deion Sanders, I just don't know. He hasn't been at Jackson State long enough. The competition is not as stiff there as it would be at a power five school. And so I just didn't know what he could do. And I, that's my initial reaction. And then I thought about it. What has Colorado done? I mean, it's just, it's an awful program right now. And it's really, it's more like a, a group of five program. I mean, it's a stepping stone job. Dion does well there. He won't be there long. I just think it's a, t- it's a tough sell now. So you bring in a guy that will create interest. And I think he can do that. And I think he can get, again, I don't know what Colorado's like NIL-wise. Is there somebody that just wants to throw money at Ralphie and the gang? I, I, I don't know. But but um, Dion, I think, attracts such a big spotlight. I yes. think there's some trickle-down effect with your roster too, when it comes to, to NIL, you know, he's going to, as, as you said, he's going to attract more attention, um, more awareness for that program. And he's on your TV all the time, uh, with, uh, you know, glad handing with, with Nick Saban on sure. Aflac. So yeah, I think naturally just having him in your program is going to create more NIL opportunities for that roster. And Dion is a roll of the dice. No question for the reasons you just mentioned. I mean, he wanted, and an, an amazing level at Jackson State. I mean, it, <laughs> nobody would have predicted he could have come in there and 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 achieved what he did. I believe that Jackson State was undefeated this year, so certainly, you know, totally overhauled that program, transformed the amount of talent in that program. You don't know whether he can do it at this level, but I think to your point, if you're Colorado, who are you going to get? That's a sure thing. That's going to say. Yes, I'm. I'm coming to Colorado. You're, you're sure things out there. They're not leaving their jobs for Colorado, which, as you said, is um, has been playing more like a Group of Five school in recent history, rather as compared to a school that was, uh, you know, a once very proud, proud football program and and touts a national championship on its resume. So, I think I think if you're Colorado, you can. You're in a position where you probably need to take a chance. You need someone who's going to bring in talent that maybe you wouldn't otherwise get. I kind of like this hire for for them. I'm, yes, I'm with and you. yeah, and I, I think Matt Rule has a great resume, as you pointed out, and he wanted to get back into coaching. Would he have taken the Colorado job? I don't think so. No, certainly not over Nebraska. I don't think, and not that Nebraska is any. Uh, great success story in the last decade, but it still would have been ahead of Colorado in the pecking order for Matt Rule. And Luke Fickle, he wouldn't have left uh, Cincinnati, which is headed for 
a Power Five conference, going to the Big 12. He wouldn't have left Cincinnati for Colorado. In fact, if you'd asked him the question, he would just have stared at you like you had five heads. So it's an opportunity for Dion, and my guess is Dion is thinking he's already thinking about his next move. Goes in there, upgrades the talent level, goes six and six, goes to bowl, and he is out of there. One-year wonder. So uh, that leaves us with number one, Hugh Freeze. I just don't think Auburn could have done better than Hugh Freeze. Would I'm Lane Kiffin have been better? Would that have been? I, I mean, that's who they made a run at first. Obviously, would would that have been better? Or do you think Hugh Freeze, their their backup plan, their plan B, the backstop, was actually the the better outcome for Auburn? I don't think Lane Kiffin should be as good would be as good a fit. Now, I probably didn't think Brian Kelly was a great fit at LSU. And if you're a good enough coach, it really doesn't matter. So yes, he was a he would have been a good get for Auburn. When I look at it long term, I, I kinda like Hugh Freeze a little better. He's proved he can win in the SEC by hook or crook. Emphasis on the crook. But that's not a deal breaker in the SEC. It's almost uh, an incentive to hire the guy. Well, he's, he will do what it takes. We know that about Hugh Freeze. So, so that's what Auburn wants. He beat Nick Saban twice. Who does that? Gus Maldon did it at Auburn. Hugh Freeze turned around the program and just discount how he did it. He did succeed in doing that. And I think he's a really good coach, a really good offensive coach. And Auburn certainly, you saw its its offense this year. It just cried out for help. Hugh Freeze would have been a better hire instead of Brian Harson. That's I wonder what Auburn would be right now if it would have hired Hugh Freeze instead of Brian Harson a couple of years ago. So as the cliche goes, he checks all the boxes. I really think he does that. And the other thing is NIL money. He's really good at smoothing with the boosters. The Mm. boosters will like him in Auburn and they will be willing to, to give their support financially and emotionally. So I, I think this is a great hire for Auburn. We know John that, that Hugh freeze is is probably going to hit the transfer portal heavily in this off season. He's, he's openly said that, that, you know, he wants to win, with recruiting high school prospects, but in year one, he, he can't count on that and, and transform the program at the rate he wants to do it. So we know he's going to hit the portal hard. That's no surprise. We saw Brian Kelly do it last offseason. We saw Lincoln Riley do it at USC. I think that is the way of the world, uh, particularly for first-year coaches. That's how you overhaul your roster immediately. I think Auburn's going to be uh, functioning at a much higher level next season than it was this season. I think we're going to see the Hugh Freeze uh, effect in year one. I think he's he's a far better coach than Brian Harson. He'll bring in more talent than Brian Harson. importantly. My question, though, to you, John, we know this is a job where uh, there, there's not always a ton of patience, not that there's much patience anywhere in the SEC. Now, Gus Malzahn did last eight years, uh, but it seemed like Gus was always – about one game away from the hot seat. I mean, he's spent almost his entire tenure on the hot seat at, at Auburn. And, and he lasted as long as he did because he had eight straight winning seasons. I mean, they finally just said, Gus is never going to have a losing season, so we'll just fire him after a winning season. 
but then Brian Harson comes in and last two years, not even year and a half season and a half. Uh, and there was some question of whether it was even going to get that long. So we know this is a job with a relatively short leash. Hugh freeze also did not drive a hard bargain as compared to some of these other coaching coaching contracts we see. I mean, we're seeing guys out there far less accomplished than Hugh Freeze get much richer deals. Now, we know why that is. Hugh comes with baggage. Um, he has enough baggage to fill a church fan, and he, he was coming from Liberty, so he couldn't really drive the hardest bargain. But point being, if this goes south in the first couple seasons, Auburn could 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 flush you freeze within two years and afford to do it. That's, that's not the problem. So I wonder how long of a runway will he get? If he does get a runway though, how long until Hugh freeze has Auburn in an sec championship game? Let's say, let's say Auburn gives him some leash. They don't, they don't act quickly. They're not going to throw him overboard in two months. Hugh freeze behaves himself. So he doesn't give him reason to throw him overboard for off the field shenanigans. How many years until Auburn is in an SEC championship game under Hugh Freeze? That is really a challenging question because the SEC is about to change dramatically with the addition of Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, We'll get away from the divisional format, and you'll take the two best teams in the conference. Uh, He's coming into a league now where, where I think LSU will be on the ascent. Tennessee's already made a dramatic taking a dramatic step forward under Josh Heupel he's coming into a really tough into a really tough league it's tough to me a lot of good coaches in this league now so I I don't know I mean I think uh, winning a championship when I look at Auburn right now I don't see it happening in before four or five years I mean if everything works well yeah maybe you can win a championship in five years but I don't see it happening before that I'm not saying winning, just make an appearance. You just got to get there. You can, you can pull the LSU, you know, get there and lose by 20 points. Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to see that anymore under this new format. I think we'll see two really good teams, national championship caliber teams. I don't think he can build a national championship program in just two or three years. But maybe I'm selling him short. Because he did make a quick turnaround at Ole Miss. Yeah, I don't know if you are. I mean, I, I think he can make a, a a significant turnaround and still not make the the SEC championship. I mean, you can you can win nine, ten games and not necessarily make the SEC championship, just depending on how strong the league is that year. I just ask because you know, look you look at Nick Saban at Alabama. It was a different sport back then. It seems like so much has changed, but uh, Nick Saban made the SEC championship in his second season at Alabama. Kirby Smart made the SEC championship in his second season at Georgia, won the East in his second season uh, at, at, at Georgia 2017, and actually won the SEC championship that beat Auburn that year. And then Brian Kelly, in his first year at LSU, made the SEC championship. Now, took advantage of a down West division, uh, but still, they were they were in Atlanta. So you know, you look at some of the biggest names in coaching in this conference. Saban won the SEC in year two. Kirby won the SEC in year two, and Brian Kelly was the SEC's runner-up in year one. So I'm not saying that should be the bar for Hugh Freeze because I think uh, you know I wouldn't put Auburn 
up in that same stratosphere of, of program as Alabama, as Georgia, uh, as LSU. You know, I think those programs have some advantages, maybe that, that Auburn doesn't. Auburn's the number two school in its own state. Auburn fans don't like hearing that, but it's true. It's still a really good job. It might be a top 15 job in the country, but I don't think it's as good a job as those other three. But I just wondered, you know, we, we have seen coaches, big name coaches at big name schools, Get, get to Atlanta within a couple of years. Yeah, you're right about that. I, I just think sometimes that happened, not just because of how good the coach was, but what the competition was like surrounding him in one division. We right. look at the East. The East hasn't been great a lot of times. And, and think about this. You had Florida. Florida was down for a while. Tennessee was down for a while. Now you have Tennessee up. And you have Florida maybe heading in the right direction. I know the jury's out on Billy Napier, but he didn't have much to work with this year. So I see I see potential with Florida at least. And Josh Heupel clearly has proved he could win. So to me, and then you add Oklahoma and Texas, it's, uh, it's really going to be a challenge for Hugh Freeze. But I don't think Auburn could have done better than this. No, I, I think if you set the moral turpitude aside and not everybody is willing to, and I, I respect that opinion, if your moral compass says that Auburn shouldn't have hired Hugh Freeze, I'm not going to argue with, with that. Um, I, I, I do think there there were obviously is, is red flags there. There's skeletons in that closet. Auburn better have thoroughly vetted this search. If there was ever a candidate that called for thorough vetting, it's Hugh Freeze. Um I fall on the side of, I don't know that we know enough. There's not been enough evidence presented to me that shows Hugh Freeze was unhirable. Uh, I think there are some coaches that I would say they're unhirable. You can't hire those people. With what we know about Hugh Freeze, with the evidence that's been presented to us, I don't go that far with him. So I, I think this is a hire you can make. And when you put that stuff aside and look at the football I think this is a really good hire for a program coming off of a couple bad seasons, and I think they can put those days behind them. I, I think they're going to they're going to turn the corner pretty quickly. Uh, I'm with you. I think it probably is more realistic to say four or five years before you can expect Auburn to get to Atlanta. I think you make a good point about the divisions. You know, if if we were in a divisionless format this year, I don't think LSU would have been in Atlanta. They they lost the head to head with Tennessee. I think it would have been Georgia and Tennessee playing for the conference championship. Um, you know, go back to Kirby Smart winning the East in year two. Well, the East was down back then, so there was there was an opening. Now Georgia was really good too. Made the college football playoff that year. Probably should have won the national championship that year. in, in some ways, um, if not for Nick Saban out coaching Kirby in in that game, but yeah, I think divisions play into this and. And I think it will be harder to win the conference in a 16-team league with no divisions um, than it was before. Because you can't count on a year where you have a weak division allowing you to get to Atlanta. Well, it, it, he we've mentioned the challenges. Something he has in his favor now is the transfer portal. And you pointed out that he said he wanted to get there right away. He he wants to build a foundation, and ultimately he wants to win with high school recruits, but he needs he needs to 
upgrade his roster and his depth charts. So he will go heavily into the transfer portal. And as you mentioned, we saw Brian Kelly do that. We've seen Lane Kiffin do that. I think that's what every coach says now. But when I look at what Lane Kiffin has done in that transfer portal in back-to-back season, you can say, yeah, we our, our future is with high school recruits. You can say that. It just sounds better, I guess. But if you're a good coach, you're thinking, well, bring it. You bring in proven talent. That's an upgrade over taking a chance, even on a five-star. You just don't know how they will be in that transition. So I, I think he's proved he can coach, particularly on offense. And he may go the Lane Kiffin route and just go heavily on transfers every year. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we just saw Southern California do it. We've seen other programs do it with LSU and the SEC and Ole Miss. So I think that's kind of the way to go now. You just got to combine the two and don't discriminate. Don't say, well, we want to get these high school recruits in here and they'll be part of our system for a few years. You can't count on people being part of your system. So I think the transfer portal is you got to lean heavily on that every year. John, let's let's change gears and and take a look at the the college football playoff here. We know the four team field. Georgia's at number one. Will play Ohio State in the Peach Bowl in Atlanta on New Year's Eve. Uh, the two versus three matchup is Michigan against TCU. Alabama's on the outside looking in. And it was interesting, John. I was down in Atlanta over the weekend covering the SEC championship, and every time I looked at the television. Uh, on Friday night, Raphael Warnock, the candidate for Senate down in Georgia, was on my TV. He was, I mean, he must have bought up all the ad time. I just have this huge war chest because every time I looked at a television in, uh-huh. in Georgia on, on Friday or Saturday morning, there was Raphael Warnock until that changed Saturday afternoon and into the evening. And then Raphael Warnock was replaced by Nick Saban. There was Nick Saban on my TV politicking it up, doing a barnstorming tour. Now, Nick Saban has said when his coaching career ends, he does not plan to run for political office. Well, I don't know about that because he was working the stump speech over the weekend and uh, doing some some grandstanding for Alabama. But, you know, the weirdest thing, John, and I don't blame Nick Saban for making his case to try to get Alabama in this field, but, you know, it's kind of a weak argument. When the first line of your argument is, well, if Alabama was in the playoff, they'd be favored against some of these other teams. I mean, when you have to point to point spreads as you know, <laughs> gambling spreads, hypothetical gambling spreads, which, by the way, as gamblers know, point spreads are not designed necessarily to be fortune tellers. They're not designed to ultimately predict outcomes. They're designed to make the casino money, to encourage 50-50 action, to, to guarantee the, the casino a profit. So... Yeah, that to me told you Alabama as a two-loss team with no real signature victory, they didn't have a great case when Nick Saban's top argument is, well, the gambling, the gambling odds would like us, the the, the sports bookies would would like us. That <laughs> that's a pretty weak argument. No, and what your and when your greatest accomplishment, you can shout to the heavens, we beat Texas. Yeah, go beneath the surface and you beat Texas without its starting quarterback for three quarters and you won on the last second. So Nick did I, I give him credit for trying though. You you 
you think maybe the Alabama brand will sway a few people, and it did have close losses, but you can't talk about point spreads and, and losses. You need to talk about wins in that situation. It, you know, if uh, you had a marquee win, and that's what that's what Alabama lacked. And, and watching that team this season, very uncharacteristic Alabama team, a team that just made a litany of mistakes, penalties, just just stupid penalties. This did not look like a Nick Saban coach team. It didn't look like an Alabama team. We've seen all these championship teams. If Alabama got in the playoff, I think it, I don't care what the line was. Uh, I think it would have lost its first game. It would have been the fourth team in, so it would have played Georgia. Alabama wasn't beating Georgia. It couldn't, it, it just wasn't happening. It lost to it in the championship game last year, and Alabama had a better team last year. So, so I, I give him credit, though. You always try. Yeah, and, you know, some folks listening to this might say, oh, you, you're Bama haters. It's, it's not that. I mean, selfishly, I would have loved a, another opportunity to watch Bryce Young play uh, in, in a playoff game. I mean, selfishly, just just from a football intrigue standpoint of it, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing Alabama in the playoff. I wouldn't mind seeing, you know, covering the SEC like we do. I wouldn't mind seeing Alabama and, and, and Georgia play in a semifinal, but it's not about that. It's not about uh, which player do I want to go out there and, and see again, which matchup do I want to see just selfishly as a sports fan. It's about what do you have on your resume? What did you go out and prove during the season? And I think we think, oh, Alabama should be a playoff team. It says Alabama on the front of the jersey. Nick Saban's the coach. Bryce Young's the quarterback. But if you watch that team play every week, they didn't pass the eye test. And I, I guess my final thought on Alabama before we move back to the, the teams actually in the playoff, I think if you have the resume, you tout your resume. If Alabama truly had the resume, Nick Saban would have spent Saturday politicking on on, on its resume. Uh, if you don't have the resume, you tout the eye test. We really didn't, you know, you, you tout the style points. We really didn't hear Saban say that either. I guess if you don't have the resume and you don't have the eye test, then you're left pointing to hypothetical point spreads. <laughs> uh, what the sports bookies think. That's that that leaves you in a tough corner. That you either need the resume or you need to have dazzled on the eye test. When you got two losses and you don't have either, that that leaves you in a corner. I think. Yeah, I and and I would like to have seen Bryce Young play. And the reason I would have so I certainly wasn't opposed to Alabama making the playoff because I would have loved to experience the backlash because there are a lot of Alabama haters out there. There are a lot of SEC haters. What's Alabama doing in the playoffs? What's its best win? Why is it in the playoff? Why isn't TCU in there? Um, so, yeah, that would have been a lot of fun. So I miss that. But, yeah, if you just came down to really looking at the resumes, and you know what? I don't think Ohio State belongs in the playoff either, but I can't find anybody to put ahead of it. Uh, to me, Ohio State had its uh, its opportunity against Michigan, home field advantage, uh, revenge motive from last season, big-time quarterback, had the better quarterback in the game, that huge hometown crowd urging it on. I, I just think everything, this was your opportunity. What happens? You just unravel in the fourth quarter. So to me, Ohio State had its chance. It blew it. I think it's kind of unfair that Michigan will have to – 
that have to turn around and beat Ohio State again. But that's that's the way the playoff works. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think that that reality will come true for Michigan because I think Georgia is going to take care of Ohio State in the semifinals. But but you're correct. There there is a chance that 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 may happen in the national championship game, as we did see the rematch last year between Georgia and Alabama. Let me run this by you, John. So Georgia's the one seed. They get to play in Atlanta. That's that's where they want to be. They're on the seed line they want to have. However, do you think Georgia has the tougher first-round game than Michigan? And I don't know if I say that for sure, but I, I think you can make the case. But, I mean, I think TCU's been undervalued all year. And then, you know, they lose the Big 12 championship. Really probably should have after they rallied, probably should have won that game. I thought, Sonny Dykes, I mean, what, what are you doing the last two plays in overtime? Keep the ball in the hands of your best player. I mean, Max Duggan, uh, I mean, he's on a short list of best players in college football this this year. He, he spearheaded that entire comeback. And then the final two plays, you need two feet, and you're not going to put the ball in the hands of your best player. That was just, Sonny Dykes, to me, surrendered being coach of the year based on that two-play <laughs> sequence. There, there's no excuse for giving Sonny Dice the award when he botched those final two plays and took the ball out of the hands of his best player. I mean, uh, eighth-grade football coaches know that. You need two feet. Keep the ball in the hands of your best player. But anyway, I think a lot of people now will look at TCU as damaged goods and think well, Michigan's going to crush TCU. Um, so what do you think? Do you think Georgia actually has the tougher opponent despite being on the number one seed line? Uh, or, or do you would you rather play Ohio State when you take the name off the jersey? Do you think TCU is a better team than what Ohio State is? No, I think Ohio State's probably a better team. I think Georgia Georgia has a, a tougher opening opponent. And I'm like you though. I, I gave TCU a lot of credit this year, and you know I question whether it could be Kansas State. I think Kansas State's a very good team. I know it lost three games, but I think it's a very good team. So I, I, I look at Ohio State in Georgia. We talk a lot when we're ranking teams and comparing teams, and we talk about the eye test. Well, if Ohio State is playing, oh, I don't know, Indiana, it looks great with the eye test. But when teams play Georgia, they don't look so good with the eye test. The quarterback who's sitting back there surveying the field and, and going through his progressions and waiting for somebody to come open and he throws a throws a rifle shot out there and they make a big play, uh, that doesn't happen a lot with Georgia. I think Georgia's a really good team, and I think it's a better team than Michigan. And we look at what, Ohio, what happened to Ohio State against Michigan. So... I think the I don't think the eye test will be as appealing for Ohio State when it lines up against uh, Georgia. You know what's interesting about Georgia, John? When they turn it on, um, I, I think they look as good as last year's team. I think they clearly look like the best team in the country when they turn it on. There haven't been many games this year, aside from that season opener against Oregon, where they've turned it on for four quarters. I mean, you think about the the game against Tennessee, uh, probably the most impressive win on Georgia's schedule because that was Tennessee undefeated with Hendon Hooker in the lineup. Georgia turned it on in the first half, and by halftime, game was over. Certainly by midway through the third quarter, game was over. There was no question about it. 
And then Georgia just kind of turned it off and coasted in the locker room, won by a couple touchdowns, and that's that. Against LSU on Saturday, Georgia kind of stumbled around in the first quarter. LSU was having a lot of success on offense, and then boom, Georgia blocks a field goal, one of the strangest plays of the year. About 18 of the 22 players on the field stopped playing. Christopher Smith, heady play, scoops and scores uh, while 18 guys are walking to the sidelines. And then Georgia just turned it on in the second quarter. LSU had no first downs in the second quarter until like the final 30 seconds before halftime. I mean, they, they didn't they didn't move the ball at all in the second quarter until that, that final drive that they got a field goal on. And in the second half, eh, it's just kind of ho-hum. We're going to you know, get lit up on defense by Garrett Nussmeyer because we got a, a comfortable victory, take this 20-point win into the playoffs. I just, how good could Georgia be if they turn it on for four quarters? Like, that's, maybe they will never need to. Maybe they can win a national championship doing this. And But I think it's kind of dangerous, you know, if they play this way against Ohio State or Michigan, you know, they can, they can mess around and, uh, and get bounced from this thing. But I, I think when they turn it on, there's no question to me uh, that when George is playing at its best, even compared to other teams' best efforts, I'll take Georgia every time. Yeah, and I, I think that's what bothers me about Georgia. I think it's the best team, but that really concerns me about Georgia is the fact that it thinks, well, we'll just turn it on. We'll, we won't quite knock the opponent out, but we'll establish our superiority, and then uh, we'll just you know, we'll go through the motions for a couple of quarters and then go celebrate the win. I don't think you can do that against Ohio State, and I think Michigan is the same way. Maybe even TCU with this, with its uh, resume for comebacks. You, it's hard to knock TCU out. I know Kansas State beat it, but TCU is a tough out. And But I look at Ohio State with its ability to score as quickly as any team in college football. And I think about what LSU did against Georgia. All of a sudden, Georgia's defense looked vulnerable. Why would it look vulnerable? Uh, we didn't see that last year. And that's you pointed that out. That's the difference in this Georgia team and the one that won the national championship. The national champions seemed intent on proving, particularly on defense, with all those future NFL players, it seemed intent on proving we're the best team or we're the best defense in the country. And we're going to remind you of that on every play. We're, we're not letting anybody score 30 points on us. We're not going to let some, some backup quarterback in there come in there and look like a combination of Peyton Manning and Patrick Mahomes. No, we're going to, we're going to show them this is who we are. And I don't see with that with Georgia's team this year. And I think now as you raise the caliber of play, to me, that's what makes that what that's what makes Georgia vulnerable and creates some uncertainty for the playoff. Well, and especially against Ohio State, John, I mean, there were times this year where much like Georgia, they did not look at their best. Michigan just owned that second half a couple weeks ago. But I think about road games against Penn State and Maryland. Uh, watch both those games. You know, Maryland and Penn State were, were were giving Ohio State all they could handle into the second half of those games, and then boom, the Buckeyes turned it on after halftime, um, and it was a very Georgia esque effort, I thought, there for spurts of that game, uh, as they ended up winning both those games by multiple 
multiple scores on the road in games where it really looked like they'd have a fight till the end. No, they turned it on for like the final quarter and a half and, uh, and one going away. So I think, I, I think people are just assuming it's going to be Michigan and Georgia in the end. But I don't know. Once you once you move past the debate of, well, should Ohio State really be here? Did they earn it? Once you move past that debate and just look at the matchup, I'm not saying Georgia's going to lose. They're the favorite for a reason. I think they should get to the national championship. But this isn't a layup for me. I, I think when Ohio State can throw a counterpunch that that matches Georgia's, I believe. Yeah, and, and I think looking at it from the other side, Ohio State's challenge will be things won't come easy. And, and I think in a lot of games this year for that offense, things came easy. They didn't come easy in the second half against Michigan. True. And and, and having experienced that, that could could be an advantage for Ohio State in this game in that it's, it's seen what can happen, what can go wrong, and it went wrong in spectacular fashion against Michigan. I think it's got to go out there, and this is – it has a really good passing game, but it hasn't seen a pass defense that can do what Georgia's can. I, I really like to wait. Now, you didn't see that against LSU, and again, that gets back to our other debate. But when Georgia's is on the top of its game and its DBs we are playing well, and we saw it against Tennessee – when they shut down the nation's number one offense, they can do that to Tennessee. They can do it to Ohio State. You just have to wonder, can it maintain that for a whole game? Yeah, that's true, John. And and, and I can talk about Landon Haymakers on on Maryland and Penn State as much as I want. But, uh, uh, you know, landing a knockout punch on those teams and doing against Georgia uh, are two very different things and and Georgia is the number one seed uh and deservedly so for the way it has uh it has performed this year it is the team to beat it was the team to beat last year uh Alabama did it once couldn't do it the second time and now it, it goes into the playoff looking awfully strong um even if it does show some vulnerability in spurts so uh we'll we'll probably talk more about it before we get to that national championship game before we get to those semifinals I'm sure Uh, But thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered.